0: Listener Production.
1: Hello and welcome to The Briefing. Katrina Blau is here with you. And can you remember those heady days of the pandemic when we used to tune in to our premier's every press conference for all the latest information on case numbers, vaccines, and border closures? What what memories? Uh, well, look, this week, the last pandemic premier of them all, Queensland's Anastasia Palaszczuk, stepped down, signalling the end of an era.
2: It probably, in a political and human sense, it exhausted people. That's why you've seen a lot of um, premiers deciding to check out. But in terms of the sheer uh, popularity that the pandemic enthused, I think you could argue that it actually extended the life of some governments.
1: Yeah, so that's what we're looking at in the second half of this episode, the end of our pandemic premiers. But first, let's get into today's headlines with Bensi and It is Thursday, the 14th of December.
3: Good morning, Katrina. Cyclone Jasper has hit far north Queensland, leaving more than 36,000 homes without power overnight. The storm made landfall north of Port Douglas as a Category 2... There were wind gusts of up to 120km per hour in coastal areas south of Cooktown, including Cairns, with almost 200 millimetres of rain falling across some areas as well. Now thankfully the storm has moved inland and it was downgraded to a Category 1.
1: Yeah, as you were saying, so many homes without power, a lot of people without mobile phone reception as well. So we will be hearing more throughout the day of of just how many people have been affected and what the impact of that cyclone has been. It's hit resort towns like Palm Cove and Port Douglas particularly badly, which is so sad because they were hoping for a great summer um, now that La Nina had gone. You know, they had all those COVID years and they thought that this was the year they were going to be able to recoup some of those tourist benefits. A really interesting aspect, Bensian, of this cyclone was how big the eye was. It was 70 kilometres wide and people were being warned that, uh, you know, that was uh, a long time to be in that eye because it was such a slow moving cyclone and to not be complacent with that eye passing over the top of them. Just
3: difficult to imagine something that Enormous, and um, what a what a devastating day. Meanwhile, there is a really. Beautiful story on the ABC today about a pelican that was rescued before the cyclone arrived. So, this pelican had a fishing hook lodged in its head, and locals had been trying to catch it for months so that they could help it and get this hook out of its head. And there was a call out on social media, and they had about eight people. They used a bait and a pool net, and they caught this pelican and they freed it from the hook just before the cyclone arrived. How about that?
1: Oh, that's a beautiful story of community spirit. Well, nearly 200 countries at the UN Climate Summit have agreed to transition away from fossil fuels for the first time. And those are the words that they used, transition away from coal, oil and gas rather than... What was earlier called for in the week, which was phase out fossil fuels, despite the urging from 130 countries, scientists and civil society groups to use that stronger language. This agreement comes after almost two weeks of COP28, where nations were focusing on tackling climate change after months of record-breaking extreme weather around the world. So benzene, oil, gas and coal currently account for about 80% of global energy. But this is the first time in three decades that the COP climate summit has actually had an agreement like this. So it is progress. But, you know, Pacific nations like the Marshall Islands earlier in the week said that they weren't on board using language like this. They, They even said that it would lead to them heading towards their watery graves. But look, there was a consensus of 198 countries out of 200. So it is consensus. It is a step forward.
3: Yeah, it is a step forward. I think it just strikes me that, you know, when I was a teenager, they were saying we've got five, maybe 10 years to do something really radical about climate change, or we're going to be in a really awful position. And the science has been pretty clear on this for a very long time. And Now, in the year 2023, we're finally saying we should transition away from fossil fuels. I mean, yeah, yeah, we should. I just feel like, wow, we could have been here a long time ago.
1: And over in the US, Tesla is recalling more than two million vehicles following an investigation into a flawed autopilot system, That is supposed to ensure drivers are paying attention when using the setting. US safety regulators posted documents yesterday saying Tesla will send out a software update to fix the problems. Now, this recall comes after a two-year investigation. Uh, There's been multiple crashes, some of them fatal, that occurred while the setting was being used. Um, So autopilot can steer, it can accelerate and brake automatically in its lane, but Tesla has always said, look, guys, you shouldn't be letting the car do all the work, um, even though it's called autopilot. And maybe that's the point, Benzian. Maybe they should rename it <laughs> if it's not true autopilot because they've <laughs> even busted people like being drunk in the back seat and turning this so-called autopilot on and yeah, getting into all kinds of trouble.
3: Yeah. I think the wild thing about these driverless cars in general is that we really do expect them to be much safer. Not not like as safe as human drivers. We expect them to be much safer than us because as soon as someone is injured or killed and there have been deaths from driverless cars, um, we say, well, we have to stop this whole thing. So um, I think the standard has to be really, really high. And um, if something has to be recalled to make sure that that happens, well, I think that's what we all expect, even though humans are much worse at driving.
1: (laughs) (laughs) some humans. <laughs> All right, Benzie, and thanks for that. Let's get into our briefing topic now with Sasha Barbegash on the end of the pandemic premier era. Good morning, everybody. Good Good morning, morning, everybody. Everybody. Based on the health advice, please note. I just want to stress 24, 65, 262 are infectious in the community. Do you want to pick me up? Go to the pub and then grab a kebab with me. Mark McGowan. Rapidly, rapidly. Get
0: on
2: the beers. That's your civic duty. Beers. Get on the, get on the, get on the beers.
0: Dan Andrews, Gladys Berejiklian, Anastasia Palaszczuk, Mark McGowan, Stephen Marshall, Peter Gutwin remember when australia's premiers were getting the same attention as rock stars we were talking about them every day there were tiktok dances and memes we waited for their daily press conferences with bated breath australia's COVID years revolutionized our relationship with politics especially our state leaders so now they've all moved on what will their legacy be well i'm here with veteran political journalist andrew proben Andrew, it feels a bit like the end of an era. Do you think COVID shortened the longevity of the premiers? We've just seen Anastasia Palaszczuk resign. You know, could she have lasted longer had it not been for COVID?
2: Look, I think that it it probably, in a political and human sense, it it exhausted people. That's why you've seen a lot of um, premiers deciding to check out. But in terms of the sheer uh, popularity that the pandemic enthused, I think you could argue that it actually extended the life of some governments. I mean, if you look at uh, Anastasia Palaszczuk, for example, she had her election in the middle of COVID back in October 2020. She won that um, in a thumping way. Uh, What was her pitch? It was about keeping Queenslanders safe. And at that time, As people, listeners in Queensland might remember, there were just four active cases of COVID. She was being marked up big time. Her government was being marked up big time in the handling of COVID. And in 2020, this was before the vaccines were available. So there was a lot of premium placed on simply closing down. Queensland closed down, WA closed down, Tasmania was able to, uh, whereas states like Victoria and New South Wales were having a a lot more troubles uh, containing COVID. And and that's where the problem was. And it was that compare and contrast that actually helped uh, folk like Mark McGowan in WA and Palaszczuk in Queensland.
0: Mm. The premiers in their respective states and indeed across the country in a lot of senses became household names during the peak of the pandemic years. Have we ever seen anything like that before in Australia?
2: We have simply not seen anything like that. I mean, we had uh, primetime TV devoted to what would in any other circumstance be pretty damn boring press conferences. But these were press conferences that affected everyone. It affected how you worked, how you went to school, how you were educated, whether you could go shopping, whether you could go out, whether you could be uh, entertained uh, or, or entertained. So it affected every element of our life. And suddenly we were all listening to the premiers and the prime minister and the even the chief ministers as to what their new news would bring in terms of change to all of us. Uh, Look, I mean, it wasn't just premiers and chief ministers and prime ministers who became the centre of our focus. It was also obscure organisations like ATAGI, which, uh, may I remind you, was the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation. That was a group that was in charge of whether uh, vaccines could and should be given to various groups and the safety of them. So ATAGI was this big group and so were the chief medical officers. And while we're on Queensland, uh, Jeanette Young, she was the chief medical officer in Queensland. Guess what she is now? She's the governor of Queensland. That says it all, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And look, you mentioned the PM briefly there. Talk to us a bit more about how COVID kind of changed or revolutionised the way that the premiers and the PM kind of got together and discussed things and then how that information was communicated to us.
2: Well, it was a bit of a moving feast. I mean, there were some days, I remember, back in 2020 when there could be two press conferences and then um, other press conferences that were aligned or related to the health advice that we had because, of course, a pandemic has many elements to it. Of course, there's the health aspect, but then there's the economic aspect, and those two things were running in parallel with the Prime Minister he was tackling and and the government of the day, this is the Australian government, uh, they were dealing with a lot of information that that could change uh, by the hour, and uh, he was also facing Uh, premiers who had their own political pressure points. And what we saw uh, back in March uh, 2020, that was a very big month in the life of COVID and life of politics in Australia. Uh, What happened in March 2020 was we had premiers effectively ganging up against the the federal government and the prime minister, despite the fact that the premiers might be of different political stripes. uh, I'm thinking here of Gladys Berejiklian and Dan Andrews, the Victorian premier. uh, They effectively forced the prime minister's hand in in closing down certain aspects of Australian life. And there was this competition uh, when it came to health advice. I do remember we had Brendan Murphy saying that COVID was not really a threat to children, which, look, turns out to be the the case. But there was great anxiety that children could be the COVID carriers and could spread it uh, unless they were kept at home. So it was a frightening time. I think many of us may have forgotten how frightening that whole period was. I was right at the, um, in the middle of it here, of course, in, in Parliament House. And it was both exciting, but anxiety-inducing because you were reporting on things that were pretty pretty scary and were going to be life-changing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we talked a little bit about the press conferences and how they became daily fixtures in most people's lives. I was in Victoria at the time, so we were heavily affected by restrictions and lockdowns. Uh, and it was scary and there was a lot of things that were riding on the outcome of these daily press conferences. However, as we came to see A lot of memeable moments came out of these press conferences and you were actually caught up in the centre of one.
3: Andrew, Andrew, I'm sorry, you've had several questions. Andrew, I'm sorry. Andrew, I know, but you don't run the press conference, okay? So I'm going to go to other questions of members of the the, the group. Catherine hasn't had a question. I'm happy to return to you, but let's just keep it civil. Andrew?
0: (laughs) That was one of those things that, Came out during the pandemic, and I saw other ones. Now that was you. That was Scott Morrison admonishing you at a press conference. What was it like as a political journo to be at the centre of a meme that was going around the country? Like it's just—it seems like another world almost at the moment.
2: It, it does, is not it? Look, I, I didn't know anything about TikTok at the time, and I came. Um, that was a very late press conference, so that was a, like I think it was about ten past ten or quarter past ten at night, and we'd been there. All day. There'd already been a press conference, one of those long, long, exhausting days where things were changing and advice was coming. So uh, I think we were all a bit tetchy, to be honest. <laughs> and I was a bit fed up. But I felt like we weren't getting proper answers. And I think in those circumstances, you feel an extra obligation to get information from uh, the people before you, be they the Prime Minister or um, Brendan Murphy or the Health Minister or whatever. Uh, anyway, so that, that thing happened. I, I went home. I must have got to, to bed. You know, after you know eleven thirty or something, and in the morning, my um, one of my sons came through and said, "Dad, Dad, uh, you're on TikTok." <laughs> and uh, and my first question was, "What is TikTok?" <laughs> 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 and uh, sure enough, I, th- there I was. Someone had um, a, a woman in. Uh, WA had turned it into a TikTok event, and then it just it just became extraordinary. I mean, there was a burger joint in Melbourne that that named a, a burger after me. I was on mugs and t-shirts and stuff, and here I am, a relatively boring political editor for the ABC. <laughs> so look, it was it was pretty pretty amazing. But I think that what it showed also is that people really were engaged. People also wanted to to be entertained and, and not forget the the brighter side of life. And I think we can all laugh at each other. And I've, I found it really funny. I'm sure Scott Morrison did eventually find it funny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe now. You made the point there, and I was going to bring it up, was that news and consuming news and the information that was being put out by the politicians was at times all that we could do in certain states. It was part of your routine to sit and wait for the daily news conference or to turn on the 6pm bulletin and find out what the restrictions were going to be. And I find that really interesting as well, that it didn't only make celebrities out of the state premiers. It also made celebrities out of our journalists as well that were working at the time. Look, um, moving forward, an inquiry is looking into the federal response to COVID at the moment. It's going to wrap up in September next year, but it's not going to analyse what the states did when it came to border closures and lockdowns. Is that something you think should have been included in that?
2: I think it absolutely should have been included because this is a critical part of the whole COVID response. As we saw at the time, states did things differently. We all know that because we were all watching other states and territories press conferences. That, so they had different responses down in Victoria. It was a very harsh lockdown for which there was some division. Dan Andrews with the advice of Brett Sutton, they decided to pursue some pretty extraordinary procedures. I was living in the ACT, it was much more relaxed here. Uh, mind you, COVID probably wasn't as, as bad as it was in Victoria at the time. It would have been best had there been a very strong analysis of all of the state responses, because this was not a federal response. This was a national response, a national response that not only had different um, political leaders making different decisions, but those political leaders Accepting as they would different medical advice. I mean, go to Queensland, for example. In Queensland, we had Jeanette Young, who's now Governor of, of Queensland, as the Chief Medical Officer, saying that she didn't want young people to have the AstraZeneca vaccine. Do we remember that? Now, so there was all sorts of responses that were obviously well intentioned, but no one ever knew what was the right response, and perhaps a review that did look at what people did and how it eventuated would be best.
0: And so I guess then the question of what will their legacy be is still up in the air then when we look broadly at all the premiers that have now moved away from the role uh, after serving during the pandemic. It'll be a time will tell, I guess then, won't it?
2: Well, you've got people like Mark McGowan. He got out in WA when uh, he was still pretty popular. I mean his his popularity was stratospheric to uh, use John Lennon from about 1965 uh, when he was talking about the Beatles uh, Mark McGowan was more popular than Jesus you know he had a he had a popularity rating of about 74% who thought he was doing a really good job so he got out I mean I, I think he's benefited from that Anastasia uh, Palaszczuk has had a more tricky time because, uh, obviously, the economies uh, turned. Um, don't have the COVID panic that that certainly fueled um, her popularity and the determination of people to stick with her. So she's gone. Uh, Dan Andrews, I think he left uh, with a a, a mixed record uh, but also exhausted, clearly. And Gladys Berejiklian, well, she fell on a sword for other reasons that we don't have time for. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) but, uh, But, you know, I think Australia in the broad did a pretty good job. I mean, Australians did a pretty good job. And what we discovered is that this nation that has a strong convict history is actually pretty good at following rules. Who would have thunk it?
0: (laughs) Yeah, that was one of the takeaways, wasn't it? That Australians love rules. Andrew Proben, thanks so much for your time today. We really appreciate you uh, looking back at uh, that time of our lives that we'd probably rather forget. Thanks for your time today.
2: Thanks, Sasha. Listener